Section 9 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland. Volume 2. From the Death of Alexander I until the Death of Alexander III, 1825-1894, by Shimon Dubnov. Translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim. Manikut Baisha, Portugal. Chapter 16. The Inner Life of Russian Jewry During the Period of Military Despotism. Part 1. 1. The Uncompromising Attitude of Rabbinism. The Russian government had left nothing undone to shatter the old Jewish mode of life. Despotic Tsardom, whose ignorance of Jewish life was only equaled by its hostility to it, lifted its hand to strike not merely at the obsolete forms, but also at the sound historic foundations of Judaism. The system of conscription, which annually wrenched thousands of youths and lads from the bosom of their families, the barracks, which served as mission houses, the method of stimulating and even forcing the conversion of recruits, the establishment of crown schools for the same covert purpose, the abolition of communal autonomy, civil disfranchisement, persecution and oppression, all was set in motion against the citadel of Judaism. And the ancient citadel, which had held out for thousands of years, stood firm again, while the defenders within her walls, in their endeavor to ward off the enemy's blows, had not only succeeded in covering up the breaches, but also in barring the entrance of fresh air from without. If it be true that in pursuing its system of tutelage and oppression, the Russian government was genuinely actuated by the desire to graft the modicum of European culture to which the Russia of Nicholas I could lay claim upon the Jews. It certainly achieved the reverse of what it aimed at. The hand which dealt out blows could not disseminate enlightenment. The hammer which was lifted to shatter Jewish separatism had only the effect of hardening it. The persecuted Jews clutched eagerly at their old mode of life, the target of their enemies' attacks. They clung not only to its permanent foundations, but also to its obsolete superstructure. The despotism of extermination from without was counterbalanced by a despotism of conservation from within, by the rigid discipline of conduct to which the masses submitted without a murmur, though its yoke must have weighed heavily upon the few, the stray harbingers of new order of things. The government had managed to disrupt the Jewish communal organization and drop the kahal of all its authority by degrading it to a kind of posse for the capture of recruits and extortion of taxes. But while the Jewish masses hated the Kahal elders, they retained their faith in their spiritual leaders, the rabbis and tzaddiks. Heeding the command of these leaders, they closed their ranks and offered stubborn resistance to the dangerous cultural influences threatening them from without. 
life was dominated by rigidly conservative principles. The old scheme of family life, with all its patriarchal survivors, remained in force. In spite of the law embodied in the Statute of 1835, which fixed the minimum age of the bridegroom at 18 and that of the bride at 16, the practice of early marriages continued as theretofore. Parents arranged marriages between children of 13 and 15. Boys of school age often became husbands and fathers and continued to attend Heather or Yeshva after their marriage, weighed down by the triple tutelage of father, father-in-law, and teacher. The growing generation knew not the sweetness of being young. Their youth withered under the weight of family chains, the pressure of want or material dependence. The spirit of protest, the striving for rejuvenation, which asserted itself in some youthful souls, was crushed in the vice of time-honored discipline, the product of long ages. The slightest deviation from a custom, a right, or old habits of thought met with severe punishment. A short jacket or a trimmed beard was looked upon as a token of dangerous free-thinking. The reading of books written in foreign languages were even written in Hebrew when treating of secular subjects brought upon the culprit's untold hardships. The scholastic education resulted in producing men entirely unfit for the battle of life, so that in many families, energetic women took charge of the business and became the wage earners, while their husbands were losing themselves in the mazes of speculation. Somewhere in the recesses of the rabbinic Betha Midrash or the Hasidic Klaus. In Lithuania, the whole mental energy of the Jewish youth was absorbed by Talmudism. The synagogue served as a house of study outside the hours fixed for prayers. There, the local rabbi or a private scholar gave lectures on the Talmud, which were listened to by hosts of yeshiva bachurs. The great yeshivas of Volodzin, Mir, and other towns sent forth thousands of rabbis and Talmudists. Mentality, erudition, dialectic subtlety were valued here almost all else. Yet, as soon as the mind, whetted by Talmudic dialectics, would point its edge against the existing order of things, or turn in the direction of living knowledge of extraneous sciences, it was checked by threats of excommunication and persecution. Many were the victims of this petrified milieu, whose protest against the old order of things and whose striving for a newer life were nipped in the bud. Instructive in this respect is the fate of one of the most remarkable Talmudists of his time, Rabbi Menashe Elia. Elia spent most of his life in the townlets of Sborgoni and Elia, whence his surname, in the government of Vilna, and died of cholera in 1831. While keeping strictly within the bounds of rabbinical orthodoxy, whose adepts respected him for his enormous erudition and strict piety, 
Menashe assiduously endeavored to widen their range of thought and render them more amenable to moderate freedom of research and a more sober outlook on the life. But his path was strewn with thorns. When, on one occasion, he expounded before his pupils the conclusion which he had reached after a profound scientific investigation that the text of the Mishnah had in many cases been wrongly interpreted by the Gemara. He was taken to task by a conference of Lithuanian rabbis and barely escaped excommunication. Having conceived a liking for mathematics, astronomy, and philosophy, Menashe decided to go to Berlin to devote himself to these studies, but on his way to the German capital, while temporarily sojourning in Königsberg, he was halted by his countrymen, who visited Prussia on business and was cowed by all kinds of threats into returning home. By persistent private study, this native of a Russian out-of-the-way townlet managed to acquire a fair amount of general culture, which, with all its limitation, yielded a rich literary harvest. In 1807, he made his debut with the treaty Pesher and Daba, the solution of the problem in which he gave vent to his grief over the fact that the spiritual leaders of the Jewish people kept aloof from concrete reality and living knowledge. While the book was passing through the press in Vilna, Lithuanian fanatics threatened the author with severe reprisals. Their threat failed to intimidate him. When the book appeared, Many rabbis threw it into the flames and made every possible effort to arrest its circulation, with the result that the voice of the heretic was stifled. Ten years later, while residing temporarily in Volinia, the hotbed of Hasidism, Menashe began to print his religio-philosophic treatise, Alfe Menashe, the teaching of Menashe, but the first proof sheets sufficed to impress the printer with the heretical character of the book, and he threw them together with the whole manuscript into the fire. The hapless author managed with difficulty to restore the text of his executed work and published it at Vilna in 1822. Here the rabbinical censorship pounced upon him. The book had not yet left the press, when the rabbi of Vilna, Saul Katzen Ellenbogen, learned that in one passage the writer deduced from a verse in Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verse 9, the right of the judges or spiritual leaders which generation to modify many religious laws and customs in accordance with the requirements of the time. The rabbi gave our author fair warning that unless this heretical argument was withdrawn, he would have the book burned publicly in the synagogue yard. Menashe was forced to submit and, contrary to his conviction, weakened his heterodox argument by a number of circumlocutions. These persecutions, however, did not smother the fire of protest in the breast of the excommunicated rural philosopher. In the last years of his life, he published two pamphlets in which he severely lashed the shortcomings of Jewish life, the early marriages, 
the one-sided school training, the repugnance to living knowledge and physical labor. However, the champions of orthodoxy took good care to prevent these books from reaching the masses. Exhausted by his fruitless struggle, Menashe died, unappreciated and almost unnoticed by his contemporaries. 2. The Stagnation of Hasidism A critical attitude towards the existing order of things could on occasion assert itself in the environment of rabbinism, where the mind, though forced into the mold of scholasticism, was yet working at high speed. But such heretical thinking was utterly inconceivable in the dominant circles of Hasidism, where the intellect was rocked to sleep by mystical lullabies and fascinating stories of the miraculous exploits of the tzaddiks. The era of political and civil disfranchisement was a time of luxuriant growth for Hasidism, not in its creative, but rather in its stationary, not to say stagnant, phase. The old struggle between Hasidism and Rabbinism had long been fought out, and the tzaddiks rested on their laurels as teachers and miracle workers. The tzaddik dynasties were now firmly entrenched. In White Russia, the scepter lay in the hands of the Shneozian dynasty, the successors of the old rabbi Shneur Zalman, the progenitor of the northern Hasidism. The son of the old rabbi Beer, nicknamed the middle rabbi, 1813-1828, and the latter son-in-law, Mendel Lubavitcher, 1828-1866, succeeded one another on the Hasidic throne during this period with the change in their place of residence. Under Rabbi Zalman, the townlets of Lozno and Ladi served as capitals. Under his successors, they were Ladi and Lubavitch. The three localities are all situated on the borderline of the government of Vitebsk and Mogilev, in which the Hasidism of Habad persuasion formed either a majority, as was the case in the former government, or a substantial minority, as was the case in the latter. Rabbi Baer, the son and successor of the old rabbi, did not inherit the creative genius of his father. He published many books, made up mostly of his Sabbath discourses, but they lack originality. His method is that of the Talmudic pulpul, transplanted upon the soil of Kabbalah and Hasidism, or it consists in expiating upon the ideas contained in the Tanya. The last years of Rabbi Baer were darkened by the White Russian catastrophes, the expulsion from the villages in 1823, and the ominous turn in the ritual murder trial of Veliz. On his deathbed, he spoke to those around him about the burning topic of the day, the conscription new case of 1827. His successor, Rabbi Mendel Lubavitcher proved an energetic organizer of the Hasidic masses. He was highly esteemed not only as a learned Talmudist, he wrote rabbinical novelle and response, and as a preacher of Hasidism, 
but also as a man of great practical wisdom, whose advice was sought by thousands of people in family matters, no less than in communal and commercial affairs. This did not prevent him from being a decided opponent of the new enlightenment. In the course of Lilienthal's educational propaganda in 1843, Rabbi Mendel was summoned by the government to participate in the deliberation of the rabbinical committee at St. Petersburg. There, he found himself in a tragic situation. He was compelled to give his sanction to the crown schools, although he firmly believed that they were subversive of Judaism, not only because they were originated by Russian officials, but also because they were intended to impart secular knowledge. The Hasidic legend narrates that the Tzaddik pleaded before the committee passionately and often with tears in his eyes, not only to retain in the new schools the traditional methods of Bible and Talmud instruction, but also to make room in their curriculum for the teaching of the Kabbalah. Nevertheless, Rabbi Mendel was compelled to endorse against his will the godless plan of a school reform and a little later to prefix his approbation to a Russian edition of Mendelssohn's German Bible translation. His attitude toward contemporary pedagogic methods may be gauged from the epistle addressed by him in 1848 to Leon Mandelstam, Lilienthal's successor in the task of organizing the Jewish crown schools. In this epistle, Rabbi Mendel categorically rejects all innovations in the training of the young. In reply to a question concerning the edition of an abbreviated Bible text for children, he transcendently quotes the famous medieval aphorism. The Pentateuch was written by Moses at the dictation of God. Hence, every word in it is sacred. There is no difference whatsoever between the verse and Timna was the concubine, Genesis chapter 36, verse 12. And here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. With all, the leaders of the northern Hasidim were, comparatively speaking, men of the world and were ready here and there to make concessions to the demands of the age. Quite different were the Tzaddiks of the Southwest. They were horrified by the mere thought of such concessions. They were surrounded by immense throngs of Hasidim, unenlightened, ecstatic, worshipping saints during their lifetime. The most honored among these Hasidic dynasties were that of Chernobyl. It was founded in the Ukraine toward the end of the 18th century by an itinerant preacher or magid called Nahum. His son Mordecai, known under the endearing name Rabbi Motele, died in 1837, attracted to Chernobyl enormous numbers of pilgrims who brought with them ransom money or pedions. Mordecai's empire fell asunder after his death. His eight sons divided among themselves the whole territory of the Kiev and Volhynia province. Aside from the original center in Chernobyl, seats of Tzaddiks were established in the townlets of Korostichev, 
Cherkasy, Makarov, Turisk, Talno, Skivir, and Lakmistrovka. This resulted in a disgraceful rivalry among the brothers, and still more so among their Hasidic adherents. Every Hasid was convinced that reverence was due only to his own rebbe, and he brushed aside the claims of the other tzaddiks. Whenever the adherents of the various tzaddiks met, they invariably engaged in passionate petty quarrels, which on occasions, especially after the customary Hasidic drinking bouts, ended in physical violence. The whole Chernobyl dynasty found a dangerous rival in the person of the Tzaddik Israel Luzner, or Luzin, the great-grandson of Rabbi Baer, the apostle of Hasidim, known as the Mezirichia Magid. Rabbi Israel settled in Luzin, a townlet in the government of Kiev, about 1815, and rapidly gained fame as a saint and miracle worker. His magnificent court at Luzin was always crowded with throngs of Hasidim. Their onrush was checked by special gentlemen in waiting, the so-called Gabaim, who were very fastidious in admitting the people into the presence of the Tzaddik, dependent upon the size of the proffered gifts. Israel drove out in a gorgeous carriage, surrounded by a guard of honor. The gubernatorial administration of Kiev, presided over by the ferocious governor-general Bibikov, received intimations to the effect that the Tzaddik of Luzin wielded almost the power of a Tsar among his adherents, who did not stir without his advice. The police began to watch the Tzaddik and at length found an occasion for a frame-up. When, in 1838, the Kahal of Ushitsa in the government of Podolia was implicated in the murder of an informer. Rabbi Israel of Luzin was arrested on the charge of abetting the murder. The Hasidic Tsar languished in prison for 22 months. He was finally set free and placed under police surveillance, but he soon escaped to Austria and settled in 1841 in the Bukovina in the townlet of Sadagora, near Chernovitz, where he established his new court. Many Hasidim in Russia now made their pilgrimage abroad to their beloved Tzaddik. In addition, new partisans were won among the Hasidic masses of Galicia and Bukovina. Rabbi Israel died in 1850, but the Sadagora dynasty branched out rapidly and proved a serious handicap to modern progress during the stormy epoch of emancipation which followed in Austria soon afterwards. Another hotbed of the Tzaddik cult was Podolia, the cradle of Hasidism. In the old residence of Beshit in Metzibos, the scepter was held by Rabbi Joshua Hessel Apter, who succeeded Beshit's grandson Rabbi Boruch of Tulzin. For a number of years, between 1810 to 1830, the aged Joshua Heschel was revered as the Nestor of Tzaddikism, the haughty Israel of Luzin being the only one who refused to acknowledge his supremacy. Heschel's successor was Rabbi Moshe Sabransky, 
who established a regular Hasidic court after the pattern of Chernobyl and Luzin. The only Tzadik to whom it was not given to be the founder of a dynasty was the somewhat eccentric Rabbi Naman of Bratzlav, a great-grandson of Beshit. After his death, the Bratzlav Hasidim, who followed the lead of his disciple Rabbi Nathan, suffered cruel persecutions at the hands of the other Hasidic factions. The Bratzlavers adopted the custom of visiting once a year during the high holidays the grave of their founder in the city of Uman in the government of Kiev and subsequently erected a house of prayer near his tomb. During these pilgrimages, they were often the target of the local Hasidim who reviled and often maltreated them. The Bratzlavers were the Cinderella among the Hasidim, lacking the powerful patronage of a living Tzaddik. The heavenly patron, Rabbi Naaman, could not hold his own against his living rivals, the earthly Tzaddiks, all too earthly, perhaps, in spite of their saintliness. The Tzaddik cult was equally diffused in the kingdom of Poland. The place of Rabbi Israel of Kozenitz and Rabbi Jacob Isaac of Lublin, who together marshaled the Hasidic forces during the time of the Varsovian Dutch, was taken by founders and representatives of new Tzaddik dynasties. The most popular among these were the dynasty of Kotsk, established by Rabbi Mendel Kotsk, 1827-1859, and that of Gora Calvaria, or Gale, founded by Rabbi Isaac Meyer Alter, about 1830-1866. The former reigned supreme in the provinces, the latter in the capital of Poland, in Warsaw, which down to this day has remained loyal to the Gale dynasty. The Polish rebels resembled by the character of their activity the type of the northern or Habat Tzaddiks rather than those of the Ukraine. They did not keep luxurious courts, did not hanker so greedily after donations, and laid greater emphasis on Talmudic scholarship. Hasidism produced not only leaders but also martyrs, victims of the Russian-Polish regime. About the time when the Tzaddik of Luzin fell under suspicion, the Russian government began to watch the Jewish printing press in the Volinian townlet of Slavota. The owners of the press were two brothers, Samuel Abba and Phineas Shapiro, grandsons of Beshit companion, Rabbi Phineas of Kretz. The two brothers were denounced to the authorities as persons issuing dangerous mystical books from their press without the permission of the censor. Their denunciation was linked up with the criminal case, the discovery in the house of the prayer, which was attached to the printing press of the body of one of the compositors who, it was alleged, had intended to lay bare the activities of the criminal press before the government. After a protracted imprisonment of the two Slavta printers in Kiev, their case was submitted to Nicholas I, who sentenced them to Spitsruten and deportation to Siberia. 
during the procedure of running the gauntlet while passing through the lines of whipping soldiers, one of the brothers had his cap knocked off his head. Unconcerned by the hail of lashes from which he was bleeding, he stopped to pick up his cap so as to avoid going bareheaded and then resumed his march between the two rows of executioners. The unfortunate brothers were released from their Siberian exile during the reign of Alexander II. Hasidic life exhibited no doubt many examples of lofty idealism and moral purity, but hand in hand with it went an impenetrable spiritual gloom, boundless credulity, a passion for deifying men of a mediocre and even inferior type, and the unwholesome hypnotizing influence of the tzaddiks. Spiritual self-intoxication was accompanied by physical. The Hasidic rank and file, particularly in the southwest, began to develop an ugly passion for alcohol. Originally tolerated as a means of producing cheerfulness and religious ecstasy, drinking gradually became the standing feature of every Hasidic gathering. It was in vogue at the court of the Tzaddik during the Russia pilgrims. It was indulged in after prayers in the Hasidic Shitiblaha or houses of prayer, and was accompanied by dancing and by the ecstatic narration of the miraculous exploits of the rabbi. Many Hasidim lost themselves completely in this idle revelry and neglected their business affairs and their starving families, looking forward in their blind fatalism to the blessings which were to be showered upon them through the intercession of the tzaddik. It would be manifestly unjust to view the Hasidic indulgence in alcohol in the same light as the senseless drunkenness of the Russian peasant, transforming men into a beast. The Hasid drank, and in moderate doses at that, for the soul, to banish the grief which blunted the heart, to arouse religious exaltation and enliven his social intercourse with his fellow believers. Yet the consequences were equally sad, for the habit resulted in drowsiness of thought, idleness and economic ruin, insensibility to the outside world and to the social movement of the age, as well as in stolid opposition to cultural progress in general. It must be borne in mind that during the era of external oppression and military inquisition, the reactionary forces of Hasidism acted as the only antidote against the reactionary force from the outside. Hasidism and Tzaddikism were, so to speak, a slipping draught which dulled the pain of the blows dealt out to the unfortunate Jewish populace by the Russian government. But in the long run, the popular organism was injuriously affected by this mystic opium. The poison rendered its consumers insensible to every progressive movement and planted them firmly at the extreme pole of obscurantism at a time when the Russian ghetto resounded with the first appeals calling its inmates toward the light, toward the regeneration and the uplift of inner Jewish life. End of section 9